0: So we have artist Shazia Sikander in the studio today here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and we're going to talk a little bit about her current show, Weeping Willow, Liquid Tongues, which continues until December 19th at Sean Kelly Gallery here in Manhattan. But also I wanted to bring her in because she's a brilliant person whose work I've enjoyed for years, decades, you know, has continued to push the envelope and uh, you know comes from uh, a place where you learned a lot of traditional skills one might say in the field of art but has really been using them to sort of transform the conversation about art history but also bringing a very contemporary aesthetic so without further ado hi shazia
1: hi wonderful to be here today so
0: glad to have you here so for this interview i decided you know what since most people who are going to be listening to this even if they're in new york are not going to see your show, unfortunately, with the pandemic and all the shutdowns and lockdowns and all these things. So I went on the internet Mm -hmm. to try to experience the show the way other people were experiencing it so that get a sense of how this works, right? Because I think we're seeing, and feel free to disagree, but I think increasingly it looks like so much of the art world is going that way. And not just the art world. I mean, we just have to look at movie theaters and Netflix, you know, or Disney Plus or some of these other streaming services, where the idea of the in-person experience is kind of going a little bit by the wayside. Now, for someone who's such a dedicated object maker, who's known for your meticulous attention to detail, who was trained in a very you know, specific traditional way in terms of illumination and calligraphy and all these things, what does that say to you? What have you been thinking about now that this reality is upon us?
1: It's been hard, <laughs> to be really honest. I understand the shift. It's not that I wasn't aware, and though the show was scheduled in May of this year, mm-hmm. and I I had been doing the work, so I actually wanted to put the work out into the world, and at the same time, it's uh, it was devastating <laughs> to have the work there and not get it, uh, not have people come and see the show, and I'm still. I guess digesting that, understanding what that means moving forward, because I do not like to see my show online.
0: Mm-hmm. It,
1: it's like,
0: it, it's, it's limiting. It's
1: very limiting. It's
0: very limiting. I mean, for, for the large drawings, I mean, which look like they have meticulous detail, you know, it's impossible to get a sense of what, what they look like, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's, you can't see at all, like the detail, even the The experience of seeing them physically, the small to the large, the moving between the different languages, because I wasn't thinking in terms of like what's an arresting image. I wasn't thinking in terms of like, you know, the sharpness, the contrast, the Photoshop notion of the of the art. I was like, this art is so much about the hand Mm -hmm. and the intelligence of the hand, thinking through drawing and and touch and touch touch absolutely so there's so much nuance which goes into the work into the making of the work the drawings can take months right and um and not that they are burdened by by their labor mm-hmm. they're very buoyant and free but again when they're sort of s- smashed down and flattened flattened up, exactly
0: yeah. so now the show you said was planned since May, so is there something about this year that's creeped into the works that you've noticed?
1: A lot of the works have come about in from May mm-hmm. till probably September.
0: Wow <laughs> yeah, the, you're the, prolific because there's quite a large works, and there's quite a few works in that show
1: well, not like from the beginning till the finishing of a mm-hmm. project, like I often have lots of different drawings started, but one of the last works that's in the exhibition is really um, informed by the devastating images that were coming out of California, out of of Australia. And, you know, the images just were magnificent and devastating. And it was basically the two things that I was traveling was like, again, engaging with craft, Mm -hmm. but finding ways to transform the material the experience of the material. And then one of the the title is The Flared. It's it, it, it's really got that whole angst. It's got the gestures different. I was making that work literally in the fire mm-hmm. around it. I was lit, crawling on my drawing. It was on the floor. I had cleared off my bedroom stuff and I was just like <laughs> literally making it there. And just in, you know, for hours and Mm -hmm. then crawling right next to it and sleeping there, (laughs) I woke up and started working again. And then once I put it on the wall, I didn't make any changes. Like I wanted to capture the urgency, the despair, even like, you know, the hurt in the body, physically involving the body in it. So like definitely that was one way that, you know, I was handling... um, what i was feeling because a lot of the feelings have gone in and out of the work
0: it almost sounds monastic the way you describe <laughs> that this idea of like sort of like you know just sort of waking up and sort of worry, working on the drying i mean that feels like there's a sense of urgency
1: i work like that yeah that's how i work it's
0: so that's normal. that's normal that's not just this year yeah so it's there's normal. the urgency
1: in this year i think there's of course with the mm-hmm. with with the deadline, there's definite levels of urgency, yep. and things get accumulated. And um, but in general, I do work very intimately with my with my actual materials, with the way I can work uh, with my drawings anywhere. I'm like not limited to to this idea of a studio. Mm.
0: So now, there's something you touched upon. I'd love to talk a little bit about. You know, when you're talking about the forest fires in Australian California, you said something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is they were beautiful, yeah. Do you know, in a certain way. So we're dealing with these images, and, I, and I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of photography and image making. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the most terrible thing. Like recently with the war in Artsakh, one of the things that I noticed was the images of white phosphorus. You know, those are deadly chemicals, right? But they looked really beautiful on a screen, the way they fell And it's just this weird reality on the screen where something as horrible as that becomes aestheticized. Now, how do you deal with that? Because, you know, here you have these beautiful pictures of fires, right? You know, fires are super normal in forests, they happen. I mean, certainly, you know, climate change is impacting a lot of this right now. But I mean, historically, but at the same time, they're super destructive. Now, that energy at the same time seems to come out in your work in different ways. Right. You know, this sort of uh, regenerative quality, which I feel like is something that your work deals with in different ways over the years. How do you negotiate that?
1: A tough one, first of all, making objects. Right. So right there is a we can we can dissect that as a, a, a some type of a conflict. I think I'm interested in that paradox itself mm. and also understanding these various binaries and how to break them or step outside of them or disrupt them. Mm-hmm. And of course, the beauty, the aestheticization of the image is all there. But at the same time, I think in the work, I, there's a, a degree of melancholy mm-hmm. that's always present in my work. I think the best I can explain is I how I make each work is I think of it as a poem. Right. And that's that seems to be the way I derive engagement with poets and and then I think of, you know, the structure of the poem, I think of issues around power, powerlessness, how I think of women engaging in the work. Mm-hmm. Then then it just each work becomes very much about the relationship between meaning and craft within within its parameters. It may step outside of it and, and continue into another space. But at that moment mm-hmm. in time, the form has to be alive and in conversation with its time and space. And that's what I was wanting to inject in my work, literally, physically, how I was engaging with it, but also in terms of the images that were um, that were coming at me.
0: So the current work revolves around, or I see some of it, revolves around a poem or a verse poem.
1: Oh, yeah. In three of the large works, there's a reference to Ghalib. Mm -hmm. So there's that, and that is yet another layer. But I was imagining, you know, how I, in terms of like the painting that I made, it's uh, a parallel would be as if somebody was writing a poem.
0: Poem. Right. No, I'm say I'm okay. just uh, sort of explaining in terms of another layer because I think that layering is so key in your work. There feels like there are all these like layers. And and not that you have to understand each of them because I think they all function on different levels. But I thought it was interesting in the new work how you're sort of you've been working on this poem that was made I believe in the 17th century, am I right?
1: Well, Bralev is a poet um, around the War of Independence, 1857. Right. So there okay. is somebody who is already, you know, kind of it's a moment of incredible crisis. Right. It's also we have been, converse- there's been so much conversation around decolonizing. Mm-hmm. So again, if you think of it at that time, what exactly, how could I draw a parallel to that? I think his incredible um, engagement with language, the multi-directional nature of, is beyond my understanding. My Urdu is very pedestrian, the highbrow Urdu, literary mm-hmm. Urdu. And um, so when I thought, like, okay, I've used Ghalib before, but here, when I'm engaging with Ghalib, especially in, in one of the drawings which has the X in it, mm-hmm. that, that for me is so much of the ethos of his work, but so many more meanings can come in. You know, he is uh, engaging with Urdu at a time when Urdu is. He can't make money off of his work. Right, right. English is, you know, is in charge. That's right. And then also at the time when it's um, English, I are basically it's everything's the war is happening, so it's utter uncertainty and it's destruction.
0: So it's a nineteenth-century poem. Yeah. So yeah, I was wrong. Yeah. So it's, so, but it's based on an older work, correct?
1: Yes. So yeah. so, ghalib So what I've done is like when I was imagining. X. I was like, I could pick a phrase from Khaleb's poem. I could pick a phrase from his poem, and it would find a conversation mm. with with the idea that I had mined. the The second image is actually a portrait of Rustam and Sohrab. Mm-hmm. Again, an epic idea right. and an epic poem.
0: The famous, uh, yeah, Khusro and Sohrab. Yeah, yep.
1: and the father kills the son. Yep. Without knowing, it's his son, so the cyclical nature of uh, violence mm-hmm. embedded in it. But it's a very abstract portrait. And then Ghalib appears there through another f- phrase that I borrowed in which it's about time. How the, how the passage of time goes so fast, like he imagines time riding on horseback. And the image of, of, a, of a rider often appears in miniature painting too, so it was in my mind, I was like, you know, thinking the template or the motif of the horse rider, but in a completely abstract way Yeah. and so, so forth. So like the reference of Ghalib is in there, but my English interpretation of o- is also in conflict. So that I'm writing sense. in both languages.
0: So, those who may not know, Rustam and Zorab is part of the 10th century Persian epic, Shahnameh, by Ferdowsi. So, just to give a little background for people who may not know some yeah. of the cultural references. So, now let's talk about the, what I think is probably the, the showstopper in the piece, at least in the conversations I've been seeing, which is the promiscuous intimacy sculpture. Yes. Which is the sort of like this beautiful sculpture that combines a Greco Roman Venus with a a Davada figure from what century? Or it's it's at the Metropolitan, correct? It's at the Met. Yeah, Yeah. it's at the Metropolitan Museum. Do you know what century? Do you remember roughly?
1: um, It's the temple sculpture. Okay. And it exists there in its truncated state. Got it. And with no limbs, you know, with hardly a back. So it carries its violence inherently, it's there. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most iconic um, pieces in, in the galleries, in right. the Asian galleries. And I had already sketched out a relationship between Bronzino's Venus and the Indian Apsara, or Dev, Devata. And uh, that sketch, had I had done that many years ago. And uh, so when I was on the committee for Amir's committee with um, Tom Finkelpearl at uh, monuments and markers for the city, at mm-hmm. that time... You know, it was like, oh, I, I, if I ever do a sculpture, it's going to be sort of an anti-monument. And that was in my head. And I thought I should look into my own practice and pull out the protagonists that are there.
0: So I'll just mention for those who may not know, the, that figure at the Metropolitan Museum, is, according to the, their website, is called the Celestial Dancer. And it's from the mid-11th century. Again, another like early, about a thousand years ago, sort of a touchstone for you and that's from central india originally. So, what is it about that? I mean, there's it's so beautifully elegant. It's sensual. It's, you know, it's it's all these things. It somehow feels like those two figures naturally fit together. Do you know, in a way that you're just like, wow. It doesn't feel like pastiche. It feels very much like some sort of whole that emerges. Tell us about it.
1: Well, thank you for saying all of that. I that it dare not be a pastiche I would not have put it out there I would have killed it earlier in the process right so um so but intuitively I went for it and I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna play I'm gonna let the characters speak themselves and I was I was very aware of how it's going to bring out each burden of representation and what it meant in terms of what they represented, whether they were archetypal images or Mm -hmm. whether they were going to become contemporary in their relationship. And um, a lot of it is intuitive, even, you know, studying Mm -hmm. the apsara, photographing it, working with models, working with the dancer to make sure that the legibility of the pose that I was suggesting Mm -hmm. uh, was possible. And all of these things started to fall in place because the idea was there mm-hmm. but you know a sketch without any care for how the things are in the back it's just a, just a sketch but to really give it a th- three dimensional appearance and, and space and at that time um, many decisions were being made which were being all made in clay and clay is again a very beautiful sensuous material very much like Mm -hmm. gouache and ink and the way materials speak to me. So when I thought of it that, okay, if I don't get intimidated with the idea of clay, then clay is also a background in majority of my work. The Mm -hmm. kind of pink color that often comes in the paintings is based on the red clay. So thinking, you know, thinking again, drawing has the potential to, to appear in another manifests itself in another way. And that's the treatment of the of the surface is very much I paint the patina, the painted. Mm. It, it, yeah, you, you, you it transforms the bronze so it doesn't feel very bronze. It looks almost like it could be stone or
0: clay. Right. So why was the decision to make it into bronze?
1: I, again, syncretic histories, traditions of um, South Asia, Chola Sculpture, in the swali Harappa, it's always been there. And I was, I've studied many of those uh, traditions for my drawings. Mm-hmm. So often I look at three-dimensional forms to then imagine them outside of the art history books as little monsters that have escaped the books and are, <laughs> and then they allow Ooh, me I to I love like, that, little know, monsters <laughs>
0: that escape the books. Sometimes I love imagine it.
1: them, you know, any coffee table book on Indian art, Islamic art, kind of those big books. And then they have all these categories in which photographed sculptural um, sculptures exist, and that's how they exist, devoid of context and often cata- cataloged in in ways
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that seem often unnatural, but repetitive.
0: I, I kind of imagine you like like drawing and falling asleep by your work and all these gins running around and all <laughs> these right. little like little like <laughs> creatures. Because, I mean, there's so many creatures that seem to inhabit your work that sort of sneak in in different ways, right? Whether they're from manuscripts or whether they're from other. But there, there are a lot of these little forms that sort of take place, you know, in those. But that sculpture, I mean, how often have you done sculpture? Because I don't remember seeing.
1: No, so I haven't done sculpture. Yeah, at all,
0: right? No. Okay,
1: I did clay sculpture in school right. so
0: that's a, so you know the thing about that piece that I think is really has captured people's imagination too is sort of this you you take on not only are this as like a classical Hellenistic piece as well as you know a more a millennial sort of a millennium old you know Hindu deity, but also, there's something about it that sort of feels almost Renaissance right in the sort of like the way the forms all kind of like in this 360 kind of way they're sort of brought into this contrapposto kind of like energy right like I was thinking of like some of the some of the uh, Renaissance sculptors do these kinds of like intertwined figures now Tell me about it. I want you to deconstruct. I'm just telling you what I'm, so what comes when I'm seeing it, like some of the different imagery. I would love to hear a little bit about where some of these other, like maybe not so obvious references come in.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at it, again, you know, obvious references, mannerism is there, but it's not really specific to one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, there's so much intertwined sco- um, forms in. Um, older sculptures from South Asia. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily just about the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm like, in, in and placing the forms together, like, you know, physically working with two models. I wanted um, the f- one of the f- one, I wanted the female to cr- lift, ha- uh, like lift the other mm. so that the the foot is in her hand and she's lifting the other character. Got it. But I didn't want it to be born of that, um, that it's possibilities only because it's being lifted. Got it. But at the same time, when I was working, I wanted to make sure that the like the devata is not weighing down on the Venus. Mm -hmm. And yet, yet they are very natural and at ease. So some of these things, I think, came about in the actual act of making and thus they lend themselves, I think, a lot more meaning. So when you look at her pulling at the necklace, is it the desire that's mm-hmm. there or is it almost like she's falling and she needs to hold on to it? And they, their eyes are not locking in, in right. the sketch they were, but it made no sense. So the Venus is looking in a, in a much more adoring manner. Right. And the deva devata is not necessarily looking at her. So they, these are subtle things which I think come to play. They become very animated and have multiple meanings. And I think that that is what I was wanting to get at was how we often think of them as independent, mm-hmm. independently. But again, they, they evoke a non-heteronormative desire, which if you think of that is always going to be the outsider. That's right. Right. And there is that very fluid way in which you can look back.
0: Hmm.
1: And then when you look back, then these categories are unstable. Right. And, and I think that's what people, that's what I think the sculpture evokes.
0: So the one I was thinking of specifically, I just figured, uh, Abduction of a Sabine Woman by Bologna. That was the one I was thinking of, because what was also interesting to me was, you know, this is such a misogynistic image here, but you've taken it and you've made it into something totally different, right? Like this image of this sort of like intertwined bodies, it's, you know, of- uh,
1: Power is different.
0: The very, exactly. So that's why I wondered if you're also playing with that, these relationships with power. And it sounds like, I mean, maybe the reference isn't directly this, but you're certainly very conscious of those power relationships.
1: Yeah, definitely. Even between the two female characters, they're fairly independent, but they're very linked. Mm -hmm. But the power, it's not fully clear who's in a position of power. It is there. If you spend time with it, it becomes quite evident. But it's not didactic. It's not like I'm going to treat one, you know, west and east. Like for me, those, those types of polarities are... Boring.
0: Right. Well, that fall. I think that falls apart at first. Yeah. I think I have to say, at first, I thought maybe that was what it was. But I think after you look at it enough, it does fall away. You know, and then you sort of realize, no, this is a little more complicated than that kind of relationship. It reminds me of also the collaboration you did with Du Yun that appeared "Disruption at Rapture" at the yeah. Philadelphia Museum of Art, which I think is such a beautiful piece. I mean, it's beautifully installed in the South Asian galleries at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's from 2016. For those of you who've been able to see it, you won't forget it because it sort of uses a lot of these imagery. And in your current show, there's also the video works for people who are interested in seeing them and haven't been able to. Now, tell me a little bit about that relationship. Like, I saw saw a natural connection there. I'm curious if you see it. Between the sculpture and then a and the... and uh, piece like that because it seems to be taking history and sort of, I don't know what it is, but it's almost like you're breathing your magic pixie dust on it, Do you know? And you're like <laughs> okay. sort of, I mean, we talked about like the history books, yeah. you know, the art history books, and I feel like there's an element of that going on too. Yeah, it's sort again. of like you're reanimating and, and bringing out these forgotten characters and also just allowing them to do things that they're not allowed to do, maybe.
1: Yes, I... When you dig into the in, into the manuscript, Gulshanay mm-hmm. Ish, Rose Garden of Love.
0: Which is what the piece in Philadelphia is yeah, based on. Right?
1: They have this manuscript. So in outside of how that manuscript arrives in, in a Western institution like that, the provenance of all these things that I study, that interests me deeply. The inherent nature of like, you know, histories of looting and plundering and we things disappear and reappear and all of that aside, even who gets to tell what the pan- manuscript is about? The, it, again, it resides, the images reside in dialogue with almost 4,000 verses of Urdu, D- Dakani Urdu. There's no way anybody can provide a synopsis of that, right? Mm-hmm. So then again, I was like, who's going to determine who, what the story is? I, The museum had a little bit of a a paragraph or two on the story, and I was like wanting to shift the story. Central Asia, uh, Central India at that time in the Dakkan region, a lot of it is Bhakti, Hindu Bhakti, recast as Muslim Sufi. Hmm. So, again, you know, what you may think is Sufi may actually not necessarily be. So, then the lyrics become. In much, much more, there's more, so much more possibility there, mm-hmm. and I think that way of reimagining the past is very critical, because we we almost always are reacting to the colonized uh, histories, to the colonial versions. So my interest often is how to go further back in history mm-hmm. and take the liberty to re reimagine it in ways which may not necessarily ne- not necessarily have been in the training.
0: Got it. So now let's talk a little bit about like, you know, as an artist right now, this must be, I mean, I know it is, speaking to everyone in, the, in this community. I think this is a real transformative period. We don't know what it's transforming into, but it's transformative. As someone who sort of brings this kind of alchemy into your work, I think, is it fair to call it alchemy a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, this alchemy into your work, you know, I always wonder. Like, there must be an element of like what you want these things to transform into. So, I wonder if you've been thinking about this year and what you your hope is, what this year will transform into.
1: Oh, I for me, you know, the transformation has to strike in some kind of a equilibrium. Mm-hmm. I I just want that there's more voices, mm-hmm. more people. Participating in not just the transformation, but in defining it, and have voices, more voices that get heard, that are involved, and um, and not just within within the U.S. Mm-hmm. Definitely outside of the U.S. And I think that it seems that you know everybody. You can reach out to an audience right now. That get, though no fewer people say are coming to see the show, but more people actually have probably. Seen the show because everything is online, people mm-hmm. are online. So there's this kind of moment of like, okay, can we get more people communicating to each other? And if the way, how will that actually, what physically, how that's going to manifest in terms of uh, differences that mm-hmm. will happen across language, across religion, across culture, in policy, in, you know, is our. Are, are, Suddenly, power structures going to turn around or shift, mm-hmm. shift in how many ways. But you know, those are the those are the lurking sort of hopes. But but it's still pretty dark. <laughs> and, oh,
0: and I'm uh, only laughing because you know, I, I recognize that you're, that uh, the truth in that. So
1: so that's where I my hope lies. It's not like let's sit in a bubble and wait till the <laughs> crisis moves away and then reemerge. Like I really want that. It, the changes take root and they and they open up in ways which um which allow a you know a better way of engagement and not that we need another war.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> not not that a number of the wars have, in, have and, ended either. Yeah. Um so but you don't work with assistants, do you?
1: I have one assistant that okay. has worked with me for a very, very long time. I also work with like when I work with Patrick and Diane on animations that you know, I I've been working with JN for like over ten years, Patrick mm-hmm. maybe twenty years. Wow. So my collaborations have evolved out of a very different sort of you know, they're like they're people that have worked for a long time with me that have become part of the work. And I think in that way for me collaboration is really intrinsic. Like languages can coexist.
0: But a lot of artists at your level have sort of, like, started churning out work, right? And working with so many assistants. and But you made that conscious choice not to do that.
1: Absolutely. Why? It was just not in me.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, when there was uh, there were opportunity, and that's what I, I often have these conversations with younger women artists. It's like, you've got to think about all of the options that are there, because I... I didn't really sort of think I was entering the art world, and I had to play a certain part or a role or perform. Neither did I want to perform my identity, mm-hmm. you know. So, so it was like, okay, you're supposed to make these small, detailed paintings. Right. Go, go ahead. It, the onus <laughs> is on you. Set up a sweatshop in other parts of the world and start like turning those out. You know, that basically, that's been the model. Right. And um, my work was so much about an intellectual engagement, also understanding, you know, things that in the making they Mm -hmm. come about and enjoying it like the pleasurable activity is there. (laughs) it sustains me as an artist. Right. So, yeah. So those are those are that's another topic.
0: (laughs) Totally. But you touched on something I want to ask you about, which is how do you negotiate? I mean, you work within a tradition. I mean, there are a number of traditions you're working in, one of which is the, uh, you know, the sort of Persian manuscript tradition, then sort of its incarnations in South Asia and elsewhere. But you also fight that kind of being labeled, right? The sort of kind of identity that that one wants to impose on makers of work that are closer to their culture when they're non-Western. How have you negotiated that? Because I think that's a really difficult space a lot of people have found themselves in and end up sort of falling for it. But you've always resisted it in a very smart way. So your work looks simultaneously part of that tradition, but it's very much part of contemporary art, very much bucking that tradition. How would you describe that?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking art history need not just be from the Western canon Mm -hmm. and that gives me so much freedom to imagine a visual language. I have been exploring the visual language, but that too is very hard to determine what that exactly is. Because all it is, it's very truncated. It's not like a language coming out of Pakistan. It's not a language that's regionally about, but it often gets labeled. So um, that's problematic. So I'm, I'm seeing it from multiple sides. I'm not taking one side over the other. But what I think what informs me, just like, you know, yourself, like all these books here. Yeah,
0: I know. (laughs) We were were looking at the piles of books in our (laughs) office earlier. So that's where this comes from. Yeah.
1: So just sort of, you know, reading, reading, being aware.
0: I know, but but you can say that. But, you know, the industry loves to label and classify and categorize people, you know, and I think most people go along with it because they feel like, you know, you know how artists can be, especially emerging artists, they're kind of afraid to speak up. They wanna just go with the flow. You know, oh, I'm finally getting a gallery show. Let's not rock the boat. You don't seem to have that, this, the same kind of hesitation others do. You're very clear about it. It's very clear where your work is coming from. How did you achieve that? And I'm asking partly mm-hmm. to encourage others, right? To sort of take on that power of being able to describe to people how your work should be seen, you know, or how it should be sort of brought into a bigger conversation rather than allowing others to do that for you.
1: It's a hard-fought battle. It didn't just happen. I think I got punished for it. I also feel like I stepped outside of the art world for a while. I was uh, unable to do it any other way. I think... um, just uh maybe you know in even in this particular exhibition, I was almost looking backward at my practice mm. to imagine what I wanted to create. so this backward glance has been very present uh, I think a little bit of the uh, there's a new book coming out, and the scholarship around the work is coming from uh, many South Asians mm-hmm. and uh, people that that can kind of engage the work in very different ways than perhaps the way it was placed in in the 90s Mm. so so that's exciting like i i wanted that to happen too so i think part of it is uh just i'm slow it's a slower process Mm. there was never this urgency to go run with the opportunity you know sometimes the opportunities are there but don't make sense
0: so where'd the confidence come from because i mean it's a confidence thing too right i mean most i have to say and i think i'll say this most artists don't have that confidence
1: Um, the confidence (laughs) (laughs) i should better look at the uh reports i used to get at the convent (laughs) (laughs) right i i do actually have all of them thanks to my father almost every from grade two saved Hardworking, responsible.
0: <laughs> you you went to a convent.
1: I did. I went to a Catholic school. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. <laughs> that I did not know. Wow.
1: Yeah. So I went to Conran and Jesus and Mary, and then I um, that was in Pakistan, right? Yep, so right. of course, um, but at a time when in the eighties we were we had we started getting uh, we had to study Islamic mm-hmm. uh, subject on Islam uh, on Islam too. I think my mother's generation had to study scripture. So shifts were happening, but it was still like um, considered like a great education. Right. Right. So. So, yes, of course, if I look through that. Yeah. So
0: (laughs) earlier you said you felt like you were punished a little for stepping out. Can we talk about that? uh, Of course we can talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I think this is I think this is one thing from the outside, like, that I think appears one way sometimes. But I think this is sometimes where, like, the internal struggles Mm -hmm. of the community and of an artist getting their work out, of shifting the conversation, those struggles aren't seen, right? Like, that labor is not seen. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what that quote-unquote punishment was like for you and where you saw the sort of, like, how it helped you maybe rethink what it is you're doing.
1: Yes. So what I want to express is that I gravitated to tradition, mm-hmm. to engaging with, with a language which was not necessarily popular at the time that I did. So in 1986, seven, eight, nine, in Pakistan, when I'm working with a medium at that time, that's not what necessarily my generation is involved in. Mm-hmm. So the so the rupture happens there. It's not like coming to the West. One chose to perform in a cultural specificity because you were going to cater to the West. Right. See, so the pressure on was to perhaps not continue with this language. And that's where where I think it was hard for, for anybody to write about because they wanted you to explain what the work was, yeah. where it was coming from, and there were these big lacunas right like you had to gather the information yourself you had to call out who you were from this big monolithic category of third world feminism and then you had to talk about modernist traditions in india yourself right. so you know so th- at that time it was like much harder to continue
0: I can't imagine talking trying to talk about modernist traditions in India in the nineties because it's hard enough now, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine But like that, right you
1: know, at that time, it was really very like there was hardly any information, that's and right. this is in pre internet right that's so right. yeah, so the burden was it was ridiculous,, yeah. and no matter what nuance or how intellectually you were engaged with culling out all these different histories, it was always seen that it was made culturally specific. It was about identity. It was about who you were. This was, you were doing this because you were from Pakistan, which is not necessarily true. Other Pakistani artists were not necessarily making this type of art. Mm -hmm. So that's where it became, I guess, the confidence perhaps comes from there because I didn't want to stop doing what I was already engaged with. Mm-hmm. It felt almost like, why should I stop this? Because that's erasure. And interestingly, you know, some of the larger conversations would be, oh, you're—it's easier to do this because then you're the exotic
2: mm-hmm.
1: idea in the West. So this is very interesting. You know, at that time, Magician de la Terre, like uh, that show, so of course, conversations, show, yeah. yeah, conversations that are opening up, but you're still the idea of is—is uh, is this obsession with the other? Or the idea of the other with whatever, how how it sort of hijacks the right. larger conversation. So so I guess maybe if I had if I had come in the last decade, it might be a very different sure uh, way of engaging with the broader art conversations and as an artist. But perhaps I think it's important to see that because already I think when you come to the U.S., it's very clear the countries between it's like very black and white. <laughs> So you all already are thinking, okay, this place of invisibility. Right. And at that time, you know, it's like I'm just gonna go with what I'm making, and uh, it didn't just start here; it started elsewhere. And I think that's that's how I see it. That
0: makes sense. So now, when it comes to creating work for an audience now, as opposed to let's say in the '90s, what have been the biggest shifts for you? you know, like when you're putting a show like this together, I mean, obviously this is a very unusual year, so we don't want to use it as the barometer, but I bet you there are a lot of similarities. What's most noticeable for you?
3: So
1: I think I wanted to um, have a conversation with the work that I was making. And in there, I was recognizing that the work wanted to leap outside of its space. It wanted to break all types of boundaries and You know, there was a lot of kinetic space in the work. And and um, I thought that drawing was like a thinking tool. And Mm. I was a thinker before I was a painter and I was a uh, and what that meant. So I when I started to think of like the hand connected to the brain and my ability to express through drawing, then I it wasn't like, oh, it's draftsmanship. So, you know, I was fighting that. And then I thought, okay, then if I kind of think of drawing in as a libretto, as a kinetic idea outside of the page, then I started to really uh, think of forms that could exist if they were choreographed and performed, Mm. which is different from performing your identity. So my work was never autobiographical, but often got labeled as like, oh, you're the Muslim woman, or you're the woman, you know, all mm-hmm. of those tropes. So then I started to think a little bit more in terms of the formal engagement with the work, my work myself, and let's see how, and so animation, I started to do animations early, like two before 2000, before there was... Oh, really? It was that early? Any oh. HD or anything, yeah. Wow. At, at, at Art Pace Foundation, I think it was 2000. Wow. Without one of the first ones, doesn't even have a... I think there was, like, those big computers.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. And
1: so it still exists in, in that way, in that manner. <laughs> and uh, so, but, you know, again, it was the resistance that I felt in the within, like, people wanted, I was, you know, it was harder to be, I was supposed to do the small drawings, and that's the kind of tension I felt in the commercial spaces. But in terms of my... Moving my work work forward, I Mm -hmm. kept experimenting and pushing it, and found maybe smaller institutions with academic institutions, Mm and where I was able to go to create the project, do a residency, and you know mount a mount a project or an exhibition. And I think that sustained me for many years too.
0: So I, I. I would love to ask you for advice for emerging artists. The reason I'm asking is because I think you're such a great role model. Do you know, by somebody who's been able to engage, but on their own terms, and somebody who keeps making work, but has a lot of surprises up their sleeve, (laughs) which I think is something, you know, you are, um, someone who does that, how did you do that? By which I mean, because I'm often talking to younger artists, especially at schools, and I'm always surprised how they have a lack of, for people who are so creative, they have a lack of imagination of how to make their lives work sometimes because they only know like a certain kind of stereotypes of what a successful artist is or whatever. Could I get some advice for you to share with people like that?
3: Well,
1: I was not infatuated with the, <laughs> with the art world, <laughs> right? Oh, so, I mean, who is? Is right? anybody? I, I don't know. Maybe people do want to be famous.
0: There yeah, yeah, are people right.
1: that have this idea of like, and there were, there were many people at that time who befriended me, who were, who perhaps at that time were, you know, closer to me because they imagined the space, which, uh, which perhaps looked glamorous or, right. you know, and art, I, star. Art, art star, art star. Right? right. So I never, that's just, I, I don't think you can, um, hide that if you have it or you don't. So I was never driven mm-hmm. by that. I was really, really driven in a very hermit like manner. Like to the work.
2: Mm.
1: And, you know, and, th- and that is not necessarily the best way <laughs> for <laughs> me to advise because there's a deep sense of loss there. Because my, my time is really just consumed back. Like it's just into the work and there's less time left. Mm. And that's where I was. We were talking earlier, like even in social media, you have to show up for so many people. How do you do that? Like I'm struggling with it. Like, how do you how much time do you give of your time?
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, sometimes on social media, you're like, okay, you like something, you'll comment, but someone will mention it in two weeks and you've forgotten because it's so fleeting. Right. I mean, that time you spend can also be very fleeting. But I'm also interested in that staying true to your principles because I think the one thing about the art scene and the art community, unfortunately, especially especially the commercial part, is there is this idea that once you sort of hit a groove, you should just sort of ride it out. Do you know yeah. whether it's a certain kind of work or something? But you seem to shy away from that.
2: Yeah. Do you
0: know? And I guess that's where I'm also trying to get to because I actually think there's more creativity in rejecting that kind of notion, at least long-term creativity, right? So, where did that come from for you?
1: I the the biggest fear I have is complacency. In my all bell, bells start to <laughs> ring. It's like I don't know. Maybe that must go back to the Catholic schooling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they got the guilt in you. Guilt,
1: <laughs> deep guilt, absolutely. And I and yeah, I was. I was trained You're to... never doing
0: enough, Shazia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So I mean, sorry, that. that's the voice in my head.
1: <laughs> but definitely. So anytime, you know, I'm like, I have to start from scratch. I, every single time I'm making something, I'm like, I don't know what to make. <laughs> so and like, I, it's daunting. I so... cannot, you know, I cannot just continue doing what, whatever that was that might have had a level of success. I'm like, I have to start again. So I don't know where that comes from, but most of the time, if you're... If you're practicing, you know, your vulnerability in public space, that's, that's pretty. Right. Um. Th- th- but that for me as an artist is like coming to terms with it is okay.
0: Right. That makes sense. So now then I'm going to ask this then. So have you ever thought that there is an idea that you're still kind of, that people aren't ready for? Do you have a, do you have a little list in the back of your head of those ideas yet?
1: Um sometimes yes so, yeah yes the, there are some ideas and you're I'm scrolling
0: like, away yeah, for another day for another day okay, yes absolutely
1: okay, okay. i think the, the sculpture was definitely
0: one of those one of those Ooh, i can't wait for the others then if that was one of them
1: <laughs> yes i i was like oh, i want to do it i want to do what something you know that's a, a bit like a anti-monument and 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 see what that what that could be mm-hmm. but also um yeah, I think collaborative works for me have been um, not just all natural, they require letting go of control, they require investing into relationships for a long term, you know, fighting hard for them and um, not always being like, this is my work and you, you know, you have to p- place your work within my work. It's like, okay, how to share that space, and oftentimes how to be informed by that communication. Those parallels are how you, you live your life. And, you know, and mine has been, that's how I am with my, with the people who know me, how I, those are principles that I have in, in terms of engaging with other people. And then when the work can become part of that, I think then that's been a guiding sort of, principle for me in terms of cr- pushing boundaries in the work, too.
0: Hmm. I like that. So now, how do you think of politics comes out in your work? Yeah, that's a tricky one,
1: right? Because I, I, oh, you're politically politics.
0: engaged. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know. I I'm know, politically
1: know, engaged. I follow you. Yeah, that's right. But <laughs> I mean, but in
0: general, but I think you're politi- <laughs> It's clear. And I think and this is why I'm also asking, because I think politics comes through your in your work. But it's it's not this kind of it it doesn't hit you over the head you know it's sort of it's a much more um, subtle kind of relationship but like you said with the power relationship in the sculpture it comes through so I wonder that's why I just wanted to ask you directly how you think it manifests in the work
1: it finds its way you know I when I think of the work I think the work is incredibly porous mm-hmm. it allows it has the capacity to contain and expand and contain without it just kind of weighing down and and I'm that that's how I that's how I who I am that's how I think so if I may be reading an article about climate change, if it's beautifully written, (laughs) Mm -hmm. if it's incredibly, you know, informative, and it's going to affect my mind for the next week, I will, I will take that angst and take it to paper. And it doesn't matter if it if I was supposed to be making something else. So, you know, whatever that path is that I think, actually, I have a term for it, dissonance to detour. Ooh. So what I was thinking, okay, I
0: tell okay, us more I, about that. Let's <laughs> say it again for those
1: dissonance to detour. Nice. So you know when when you can take a side side step your own stuff, your own thinking, challenge yourself, and take a walk elsewhere. Even if you're being gone for like a year or two, like I will delay the exhibition. I I will if I can, right? Mm-hmm. So. I want to explore that, and I think I that's whatever that might be cur- curiosity or intuition, but responsibility towards that act. And I think that that's one of the way politics has been It's like, I am i want to be informed. So I'm going to I'm going to make the time to mm, get informed. Beautiful. I want to go and listen. I'm going to make the time and spend time to understand and do the hard work do the reading, understand, open my mind, change my opinions, because I'm, un- I'm being educated.
0: I love so. that. I mean, it's, it's, it also ties into this idea of politics being personal, right? Because ultimately, it sort of is and this sort of journey you go on in the different works. I, I love that. So now to wrap up a little, I mean, is there anything you wanted to bring up? Because we've been having this sort of like, free flowing <laughs> conversation. But is there anything specific you'd like to bring up?
1: No, I think you you've this is one. Okay. Yeah. Great.
0: So then the last question. Okay. If there were five things about the art world you could change, what would they be?
1: No galleries. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one. Okay. Why? Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean it's sort of I think a lot of artists will be surprised you say that because you show so beautifully in galleries, right? So why would you say
1: that? Well, I didn't do a commercial show in 10 years. <laughs>
0: That's true. <laughs> oh, that's right. I always forget that. I feel like you're so ubiquitous, but I guess it's sort of like that's more in my imagination, maybe. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. So this show is, you know, after a long time. And in general, I think if you maybe, have, I don't know, under ten shows all my in that's my entire That's incredible, Shazia. So. Yeah. So, that's incredible. So, you know, like, sure, I think this show it's the first show at the gallery. I, I have enjoyed working a lot with Janine and um, And Sean
0: Kelly's a lovely guy yeah. right? yeah. And, Good program. You know,
1: and I I have to say that they gave they let me decide whenever I wanted to show what I wanted to show so whenever I wanted to So you found ready. the
0: right fit. It's like dating, right? <laughs> you're like you're like you're like, Oh this we'll probably take this a little further.
1: <laughs> but I have worked outside of that far more. Got it. And um, anyway, okay. So, so yeah. that was one. Yeah, so you now, what else? One. What else would you change? What else I would change is like I think um, there should be less MFAs. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. Good.
1: I think there should be other ways of coming to art.
0: Yes. You know. So oh, I love that.
1: There, it should not be all driven by a kind of a model of sorts that you have to access mm-hmm. the education through through that. Which means it could be like the MFA template could be right expanded further.
0: I, I'm 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 with you on that one. I feel like the MFA could be it could be more diverse, right? Like the MFAs often feel too similar. Yeah. If anything, I wish they were a little more diverse in terms of the way they approach. Them. Okay, that's another good one. Number three.
1: Like, I think artists should be able to do their first show at
0: fifty. <laughs> Ooh, I love this mature Women. show.
1: Women artists in <laughs> particular. <laughs> What's with all of that? Oh, you're an, you're a mid-career artist, so <laughs> go pack your bags and <laughs> don't say too much. Because if you do, then you're going to be the angry older woman. <laughs> right.
2: Ooh. No, yeah, so,
1: yeah, I think a lot of men can, you know, roll out of bed and right there, do their first project at 50 or whatever not necessarily i don't want to make general uh, generalizations but i think i I
0: think we get the point yes absolutely well i mean i definitely think a lot of very young artists are are being shown sometimes too early Mm -hmm. sometimes being influenced in negative ways as a result of some of that attention so i can definitely see part of that but what do you think the value of that would be if people started showing older
1: yeah um you know the value is in the work it should not be it should be less about the secondary market And you know, and then that's the other thing is that um, that more artists, more mature conversations. Artists should, Artists should be speaking about their work,
0: and their wisdom should be imparted on us. Yeah, absolutely. And
1: also, I felt like you know, if somebody else is to enter the art conversation, you know, at Mm -hmm. fifty is okay.
0: Agreed. Why not? Why not? Okay, so now number four. Two more. You have two more, Shazia. Let's see. <laughs> you know, they could be absurd too. They don't have yeah, to be yeah, all yeah. super serious. Yeah.
1: No, I, I also think that there should be more conversations around the local and the global, the regional and the national. Like some these these sort of binaries have become very suffocating.
2: Mm.
1: You know, stepping outside of these binaries, then if you let loose, then it's the conversations are much more interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And that too, I think, is really important is the conversations to be across across the centers, outside of them. Like
0: I think art fairs have definitely contributed to that erosion of the local a little bit too. Like meaning like there feels like with art fairs, I think in New York sometimes people forget that it's also local. Do you know? Like I feel like there is like this specificity that gets lost and I think art fairs contribute to this sort of any place every place no place kind of feeling that so much work I think travels in. Okay, that was okay. just my two cents. One more, last one. Last one. Last one. Uh. <laughs> what would <laughs> like you God. want what would make your life easier in this field? Like what, the, if you could if you the, so you could wave your magic wand and something that would just make life easier for you?
1: I think it would be great if, if there was some policy that allowed artists, that supported artists. So if we had like subsidized um, studios,
2: ooh
0: yeah.
1: If we had support so that you could healthcare, healthcare, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Healthcare, big one.
1: So that like tax services, if needed.
0: Yep, legal services. When required, absolutely, so the infrastructure is just not there, Yeah, it's
1: not there, even in terms of like so many of us, I was wor- I was teaching, but it was always adjunct mm-hmm. and you know how adjunct teaching is it's
0: ridiculous, ridiculous
1: and sad yeah and um, so and it hasn't it, gotten better, it's gone no, worse. It's so abusive yeah, that's right. and um, so when can why all art and galleries you know it generates a lot of money? some of that can be brought back to create some sort of an infrastructure that allows artists to make the work
0: well that's a nice way to sort of you know finish this up so thank you shazia i hope people could check out weeping willow liquid tongues at sean kelly gallery which continues until december 19th and uh is a must see i'm gonna after our interview here i'm gonna run out and see it this week but i thought you know we'll start we'll start seeing it virtually and then sort of see how it sort of transforms even in my mind's eye, even after this conversation. So I'm very excited. So thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very
3: much. It's a pleasure. (laughs) the
0: The music this episode is titled Animal by Radio Chaser. I'm Harag the editor-in-chief and co-founder of hyperallergic Thanks for listening, and stay
3: safe. about the from my